You're listening to the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast by Cepos, an independent free market think tank based in Copenhagen. Continue listening for inspiring conversations with experts and thinkers about economics, politics and society. Your host is Cepos president Martin Overup. Tyler, uh, in your recent book, Stubborn Attachments, which is this one, um, you talk about the need to be stubbornly attached to the idea of economic growth. Why is that? Why do you use that expression, stubborn attachment, about economic growth? If you ask politicians or even economists, do you favor economic growth? They'll all say yes. Like, who's against you know, motherhood and apple pie, as we Americans <laughs> say. But when you actually confront them with real world choices, very often some other priority is found, some notion of fairness, some other value that has to be satisfied. I argue in the book that if you consider the span of decades, an economy that grows at a higher rate will generally give you citizens that are happier, better adjusted, more secure, and have more meaningful jobs. So I think economic growth is underrated. So what other uh, ends should are, are the types of um, things that politicians also pursue that they should undress, uh, uh, that sh they should lower their their uh, preference of uh, to the advantage of economic growth? Well, look, it depends upon the country, but I've traveled to about a hundred countries in my lifetime, and I've never met one seen one, visited one that was too obsessed with maximizing economic growth. But I've seen the contrary in just about all of the 100 countries. Okay, so, so let's typically let, let, there's a notion of fairness or helping out people at the bottom of the ladder, which I'm completely for. But I think the neglected point is if you consider the compounding, increasing ongoing gains from economic growth, economic growth will do the most to help those people, not redistribution. Okay, so... Um You have an economy, you have uh, a country, you're redistributing wealth from the rich to the poor. Um, and some people want to increase that redistribution, which harms growth to a certain extent. It depends on what you do. I fully believe in increasing human capital, most of all for the poor. So if your redistribution Better serves education. that end, for instance, yeah. it, it very likely will boost economic growth. And yeah. then I'm all for it. But you need an actual principle of stopping. When do you stop redistributing? There are always going to be an infinite number of claims on wealth, but you will do best by your poorer citizens, and indeed, best for the world as a whole by pursuing economic growth. But absolutely, that will mean some redistribution, typically to the poor. Climate change? Some I'm, people are saying that growth har harms the, the environment and that we need less consumption, less growth uh, to uh, solve the climate problem. I think we need more science, more innovation, more money to solve our climate problems and other environmental problems. If you go to poor societies, they typically have the worst ecological situations, not the best. And uh, if you just ask, how are we going to get out of this? We need new ideas. We need more science. So I think it is the wealthier economies already that are leading the way, including, of course, Denmark, which has done a very good job overall in becoming greener. It is certainly true that uh, innovation uh, is d done mostly in, in wealthy countries. Uh, 
But you could. And that's argue, no accident, right? But but I I agree. But you could argue that there's no time. That's what a lot of people are saying about climate change. We need to to change now. There's finite. Uh, uh, Earth is finite, resources are finite, time is running out uh, because we need to keep the temperature below two degrees or whatever, and therefore we have to stop economic growth. I fully agree that we need to hurry up. But if you ask yourself, when is this politically feasible? Uh, voters don't like paying higher heating bills for their homes. Voters don't like higher gas prices. It's in wealthier societies that concern for the environment becomes more than a luxury, but starts being seen as a necessity. Uh, but of course, we need to hurry up. Let's hope nuclear fusion works. More solar, more wind. Make it easier to build wind farms in the United States. Let's, I would say let's go back to nuclear in many countries. We should do all these things now. Should have done them years ago. Let's go. I'm not holding you back. I want to do it. It's kind of interesting that in the U.S. you did fracking. Yes. Uh, um, 10, 15 years ago, you had the choice, this new technology. In Europe, we were looking at the technology as well. You went forward and did it, uh, a new technology that boosted um, growth in many ways, but also helped climate, I as it turned out. I don't think it was a, a part of the plan, but it did help climate. It's certainly cleaner than coal. It's not perfect. I give great credit to yeah. President Obama where none of his voters really wanted it to go ahead very much, except in a few particular states, but he quietly simply allowed fracking to proceed. Didn't talk about it much, just let it go. Yeah. Big and plus that, for him. And that's very contrary to what we did in Europe. And, and now we have a, a situation where uh, we have a discussion about gas from Putin. Uh, we don't have, have our own gas. Imagine if we'd done fracking. It would have been better to pursue economic growth and countries such as Germany should not have dismantled their nuclear power plants. It was an enormous mistake. And you can even think one should move away from nuclear longer term, uh, but you need the substitutes available on hand and being green, the notion that some European countries now go out and buy dirty coal to make up for Russian gas, it's crazy. Then there's the question of uh, adaptation versus mitigation. So avoiding climate change is something we want to do to a certain extent, but to what extent it's possible is uh, Sure, debatable. India, China, the countries have their own agenda, Vietnam, Nigeria, the list goes on. Yeah. It is unlikely they all sign on to and enforce some wonderful international agreement. So at the end of the day, we need to innovate so much that green energy is cheaper for them, cheaper than coal. They actually want to do it. And the, the mess that we haven't cleaned up, we can somehow deal with, and that will require more science, more wealth more institutional capability. So it, we will need to adapt to, to climate change as well. Whether we and like it or not, no matter how like good a job Denmark or even my country yeah. does, right? Yeah. And, and the wealthier we are, the better we'll be at adapting. Absolutely. Russia, how cooperative are they going to be, right? Not at all. How cooperative are they now? What does the Putin regime depend upon? Revenue from fossil fuels. So they're going to keep on going more or less forever. So we also need mitigation. We cannot expect the world to ever become totally green, sad as that may be. Yeah. Some people claim that we don't get happier from, from being richer. They could send me their money. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it would make me happier, but I'm pretty sure it would make them less happy. It's a very easy remark for people to make who are fairly well off. But most of the world is not so well off. You know, median income in the world is well below that of Denmark or America. And 
most people don't have really a true choice of job or profession or a satisfying well, life. What has that got to do with our wealth? Do we need that to is our world? It is all our no, world. Sorry, our wealth, our uh, level of income. The wealthier the West. Japan, the more we trade with poorer nations, the more migrants we can take in, the more remittances we can send back, the more aid we can give, the more we can innovate to help them. The major driver of their growth is the West plus Japan, and now China to some extent. So to the extent, say, East Africa has developed, it's because China became wealthier in large part, not only, but the poorer countries of the world actually need for the wealthier countries to try to become wealthier yet. And I view that actually as part of our moral duty. What about our happiness if we get wealthier? What does this economic I think research say about that? It's a, it's a murky that? question. If you look at within a country, the wealthier people within the country clearly register as happier than the poorer people. Now, that doesn't mean the happiest moment in your life is when you have the most money. That's typically not true. But on average, yes, people are, are better off with more money. It's why we pay people to do jobs, right? Uh, People give away some of their money to charity. They should give more. But at the end of the day, most of it is not given away. And there's a reason for that. So we like money. We like money, whether we care to admit that or not. Is it all about happiness? I don't think so. Money helps you achieve many other goals. So one of the things my wife and I do, we send money to some poor families around the world in Mexico and Ethiopia. Uh, I mean, you could say it makes us happier, but it's more we feel it's a good thing to do. If, if it, happiness is a byproduct, that's incidental. And we can do that because we have more money. So ha with money, you can achieve many ends, not just the end of me being happy in some selfish sense. Say more about that. Let's say your goal is to have a more creative, more fulfilling job, to help other people, to work in a nonprofit rather than in a for-profit. Well, if you have some funds saved up, you can do that and still send your children to the schools you want to send them to say in the United States where you have to pay for college. So you have a lot more choice. It is having some money that gives you the freedom to pursue non-pecuniary ends. Hmm. The Beatles, they earned a lot of money early on touring. They were able to go into the studio, make Sgt. Pepper, masterpiece album. There are people breathing down their necks saying, go on more tours, you know, we get a cut of this, do more. They're like, no, you know, we, we have enough money, we're gonna do what we want. And that autonomy of the artist, of the individual, very often of women or of marginalized groups, so often stems from them having some amount of money. Yeah. Wealth creation is also something that uh, um, is seen as vulgar by some people. You know, um, commercial culture is looked down on. That's something you've done work on. Um, you know, I'm an academic. I'm doing fine. I'm not a wealthy person, but I think wealth accumulation is great. It helps support the universities I teach in, the science I benefit from. Uh, shareholders of Apple have become very wealthy from selling me and other people iPhones. I got a great deal from them. I think I pay, what, seven, $800, and I have all the world's information in my pocket. Who's ripping whom off there? I'm very happy with that, but look, they are very wealthy, the, the top earners at Apple, very, very wealthy. It's a trillion dollar company, more. Mm. The current situation uh, with um, uh, Russia invading Ukraine has put security policy, geopolitic, uh, the geopolitical situation on the agenda. Um, what are, to, to what extent is, is uh, economic growth relevant to that discussion? 
The West is in a relatively strong position in that war because it has so much to do with global commerce that when private companies cut off Russia, either voluntarily or because their governments tell them to, that really hurts Russia. That's the power of Western commerce. It is quite significant, actually stronger than people had been expecting. It's no guarantee the war goes the way we want it to. Terrible things are happening there. I, I wouldn't say I have a prediction, but I much prefer the position of the West with that financial influence behind it, with those multinationals behind it. And to the extent we sell weapons to Ukraine, how much we will is still up in the air. We have better weapon systems, better science, better technology, higher wealth, more export prowess, easier ways to transport the weapons, better infrastructure, all the way down the line. All of that assistance is relying on our wealth. And as you probably know, Americans, presumably Danes, have sent really a lot of money to Ukraine. Uh, we've sent that money because we can afford to. Yeah. So wealth is on our side in this conflict. At the moment. At the moment. We'll see how it goes, right? So the long-term implications of that could be... Uh... If Ukraine had been wealthier, it would have been safer. Ukraine per capita is several times poorer than Russia. And it, it was not at all a well-run country. And that put them in a very precarious position. You don't see Russia invading Poland. It wouldn't work partly because of NATO's role in that conflict, but still, the Poles have enough resources where Russia would have a very difficult time. So you think the fact that Poland is so much wealthier than the Ukraine uh, has an influence on... Russia uh, picks on poor countries. Look at Georgia, right? Ossetia. Yeah. How wealthy is Georgia? Very poor, much poorer than Russia. Russia's picking on another poorer country. Um, If we're looking at at sanctions, one of the th things that's uh, uh, I found striking is is that uh, our financial sector that many people hate yes is actually, leading the charge is, is of actually work. become becoming a sort of central uh, thing of geopolitical uh, uh, importance. So we can use SWIFT uh, and uh, our uh, financial infrastructure to uh, harm the Russian economy. So much of the power of the Western alliance stems from these forces, not just tanks and drones and bombs or whatever. It's really financial. Yeah. And it's not clear for how long Russia can continue to pay the bills. Now, maybe China, again, a wealthier nation, will bail them out. Possible. Hard for me to predict. But again, it's coming down to money. You'd better have some wealthy friends. But if we think long term about this, uh, one of the things that worries me about um our sort of lack of stubborn attachment to economic growth uh, is that what what is it going to look like in 30, 40, 50 years uh, with China being much more aggressively developing things like artificial intelligence? You know, what's going to be the future uh, uh, SWIFT that the Chinese would be able to use against us if we don't innovate and uh, use technology and economic growth to gain a position of strength towards the Chinese. Does, is, is, is that a prospect that worries you as well? It does worry me, but I, I'm more optimistic about the West than that. I just think as societies, we have better ideas. Than the Chinese? Absolutely. Okay. Basic ideas of democracy, human rights, rule of law, they're just to me better ideas. They will make you wealthier. And if you ask the simple question, the most talented immigrants, where do they want to go? Very, very few want to go to China. So we have 
more diverse talents in a highly significant way. And I feel that that plus better ideas, I don't think China will surpass the West in any meaningfully foreseeable future. Okay, so the success they've had over the last few decades. It, it is amazing. They um, deserve full credit for it. You see it as temporary or something that will not bring them all the way up to... Correct. I'm not a mega bear on China, but the West has better ideas. Uh, it's a better place to be, a better place to go. Most of the world knows this. So, so many Russians now are leaving Russia. Obviously, Ukrainians are leaving Ukraine. I think it's so far 2.7 million Ukrainians have left. How many have gone to China? Well, it's true. Now, okay, Poland's nearby, but it's not just that. It's the whole world knows where these people want to go. And same with the people leaving Russia. They could, you know, go to Eastern Russia, try to run down into China. I'm sure there's unguarded parts of the border. Is that a, a newspaper story? I don't see it. Do they want to go to Berlin or New York City or Copenhagen? Of course. But you're also the guy who did write this book. And I think you partly wrote it because you don't think we do have You don't think we have enough stock attachment to growth. We should be you truer also to book, our enlightenment heritage. Yes. You also wrote a book called The Complacent Class. Yes. About uh, not just a class, but a really society that is getting too complacent, I think. And this is often the case in Western Europe in particular. People feel things are good enough. They can't get that much better. Economic growth is over. They're, they're just worried about the future rather than imagining how the future could be better. Uh, so many of us have lost that ability to imagine a radically different and better future. And that's such an important part of the Western heritage that Western Europe had, had better and more deeply than anyone in the 18th century, the 19th century. World War I gives that a huge kick in the teeth. And with the European Union, Europe makes a big comeback, but somehow it hasn't quite recovered that boldness of vision, that sense of daring, that we're going to build a new world and it will be fantastic. America has more of that, but still not nearly enough. Mm. We too have become complacent. How do you see that in the US? Let's start there. If you just look at simple data, like how frequently do Americans move from one state to another? That's much lower today or you know, pre-pandemic than it was, say, in the 1980s. It used to be, I wouldn't say easy, but a doable thing to just move to New York, rent an apartment somewhere in Manhattan, get a job washing dishes, and try to work your way up. It's impossible now. It costs way too much. Like no one can do it. So our notions of mobility are weaker. Our ambitions are often weaker. There are just more and more people in the country whose parents, grandparents have had money. They take wealth for granted. So much of our dynamism, we rely on our immigrants, all the credit to them. But there's something wrong with your country when you're relying on immigrants for your dynamism. Like you need to up your game. Immigrants come in, you know, learn something from them. They're the ones carrying American values, not us. <laughs> It's sad. It's embarrassing. And Europe? Well, Europe's a big place. But if you take the wealthier countries of Western Europe, you see in a lot of cases growth rates sort of that used to be 2%, now on average are much closer to 1%. Populations are aging. Often the top companies in a country will be quite old. You look at the top French companies, or for that matter, top Danish companies. You know, they weren't developed 10 years ago. They date way back in history. And that's a sign that dynamism is not being regenerated. So I have concerns. And what should be done about that? Well, again, it depends on the exact specific question. So I would like to start with a cultural revolution of sorts where people in Western Europe and North America 
simply redefine their own intellectual heritage in their own minds, that it is much more about dynamism and change and seizing the bull by the horns and imagining this different, very different and indeed better future. That's what I would like to start with. Now, what exactly should each country do is a much more complicated question. But that for me is step one. Let's at least put it on the table and try to be doing it. And that's what you're doing right here, right now. But. Yes. <laughs> but. You are an economist. Sure, ask and, me and, a specific and, question. Asking, I'll try to asking, answer. Asking for culture to change seems like a very uneconomist type of thing to say. Do, do you understand what I mean? I don't think a person should be constrained by his or her initial discipline, right? No. We're solving real-world problems that requires some form of synthetic but, knowledge. But how would you think about changing that culture as an economist? What can economists do to create the incentives for this cultural change to take place? If you look, say at uh, fellowship applications, which I read a large number of, and you just see who have been influential figures for young people, maybe 18, 19 years old, applying for fellowships. It's remarkable how many cite Elon Musk, how many cite uh, Patrick and John Collison from Ireland of Stripe, how many cite uh, Peter Thiel as venture capitalist. Uh, it has a real impact on people. So I think ideas really matter, books really matter, writing on the internet really matters, podcasts matter immensely. It's amazing what influence they have. Imagine there's people there listening to us. We're just saying stuff. We're these two guys and there's people listening, yeah. but it's mind space. And I think to go into whichever media you can do and uh, present your ideas and it will matter. Is that why you do your podcast? Uh, by the way, to, to listeners and viewers, Conversations with Tyler, I can highly recommend it. And we'll link to it in show notes of the podcast version of this. That is why I do my podcast. You know, speaking of money, I'm not paid to do it. So I'm not getting any extra <laughs> happiness through that channel. So it's going to be the podcast I want. And I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs, yeah. uh, chairman of the board of Moderna, which of course gave us uh, Moderna vaccine, mRNA. Uh, I had a great podcast with him. I think he deserves to be better known, more respected, higher status. Okay, so you present people with um, highly productive, highly su successful people. Say, so look. And why they're important, why they're interesting, yeah, yeah. why they're smart, why they're not just some rich guy who earned a lot of money. So that, that's part of the cultural change. That's you're part of the about. cultural change. Okay. And I'm trying to be part of it. Okay, interesting. And you know, I see it working, actually. I think. At least America has started to become more dynamic. And I see more of my fellow intellectuals say, you know, we can't take our wealth for granted. We need to actually produce things, take in more high-skilled immigration, make it easier to build new structures, make it easier to build out the subway in New York City, put in high-speed rail where it's needed and so on. It's become a, a movement. So to me, this is encouraging. I, I get the final results are not in place. But I don't feel like this is a, a losing battle that I'm part of. Quite the contrary. Hmm. How important do you think um, economic policy is in, in, in all of this? Tax rates. Um, Denmark has very high taxes on capital gains, for instance. Uh, we have relatively high taxes on marginal, uh, marginal taxes on income. Um, well, you spend your money relatively well. So I, I don't think you can consider a tax rate in isolation. It does seem to me as an outsider that the share of government spending in GDP is too high here and it will need to fall somewhat. That as Danish society ages, especially if you are relatively strict with immigrants, uh, it will become at some point fiscally unstable and require some modest adjustments. Whether you like that or not, that just to me seems like a fact. 
I agree with you that compared to many countries, the money is relatively well spent. But uh, some of it is uh, some of the revenue is uh, created in, in in ways that has influence, like capital gains taxes right. on incentives to invest, for instance. Right. And that, that's what, what I was referring to. Those probably will need to fall. Yeah. I've never studied Danish capital oh. income taxes as a thing, but based on what I know, that is my intuition, yes. Um, do you have any view on the total regulatory burden, the, 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 the tax, uh, sorry, the, the uh, legis legislative body that, that is uh, preventing entrepreneurs to move into new areas. Uh, it's often worst in the United States. So everyone uh, says, oh, we're laissez-faire capitalism. <laughs> it's so far from the truth. You have the state government, right? The city government, the county government, the federal government. And you might have 50 state governments to deal with, all with their own set of restrictions, layers of environmental review, regulations. It's almost impossible for a lot of entrepreneurs to deal with that. America is not a free country. It's not an economically free country. The Nordic countries, in, in some but not all ways, are much freer with regard to regulating business. There can be a lot of regulation, but it's sort of cleaner, easier to deal with, more centralized, more transparent. And we are a, a wreck and a mess in the United States. So I, I would hope we could learn a lesson from all of you. Uh, so far, that's not happening. Have you read Thomas uh, uh, Philippon's uh, book on, on the Great Reversal? Yes. Um, where he claims that creating the internal market in Europe has uh, revitalized competition in Europe, whereas competition in the US is weak. I don't agree with that. Uh, I wrote a review, review of the book spelling out some detailed reasons why. But I think so much of a modern economy is services. European service competition is actually not really deregulated across borders. So technically, maybe it is, but to actually make it work is difficult. And then across languages, you know, try being a lawyer who mm. moves from one EU country to another. Unless you're doing like multinational law, typically not very easy. Uh, he overrates how monopolized is the U.S. economy. Sectors such as hospitals, yes, some of our health care. But most of the U.S. economy, there's never been more choice ever before. You can buy things off the Internet, Amazon, Walmart. Other big companies sell you things at very low prices. There's amazing selection. U.S. is super good at retail for whatever cultural reasons. So our retail sector is pretty cheap. I don't myself shop at dollar stores, but if you want, you can actually buy things in dollar stores. And now they're up to like a dollar twenty-five instead of dollar. But my goodness, if you want to look anywhere for competition, it's America. That would be my sense as well. Yes. Yeah. So I, I disagreed with this book fundamentally. Okay. So this is. Um, a special version of this program where I'm speaking to Professor Tyler Cowan, who is professor at George Mason University in the US, and we're talking about the importance of economic growth. Um, and we have moved into a sort of policy side of that <laughs> a little bit, uh, but we came from discussing culture and, and what's happened to, uh, to culture and why Western culture may have been slacking a little bit. But you are more bullish on Western culture than you are on China. By far. Um, which I think is, puts you in a, in a, in a group that is, uh, it's slightly unusual viewpoint. A lot of people think that China and uh, the East is the future and we're sort of the That's the what I past. call recency bias. 
So if you look at the, the broader span of human history, I think the ideas that came from you know, ancient Greece, the Middle East, ultimately grew into the Roman Empire, now modern Europe, North America being its proudest offshoots. To me, there's more talent, more diverse talent there. The ideas of a written constitution, rulers accountable to the people, something approximating free speech, uh, individual liberties. I think those are the best and most productive ideas. And I look at China, I can see it, it's more authoritarian. Uh, there's some things and they can get worse. Getting much worse. Some things yeah. they can get done more quickly. Greater respect for ancestors that may be admirable, but overall much less well geared for rapid change. They're now having massive problems constraining COVID. Uh, they've refused mRNA vaccines because they weren't Chinese. Yeah, that to me says it all. And that kind of mentality over time is a bigger problem than whatever problems you see in Western thought, which are real, to be clear. There's an irresistible um, parallel to the centralized discussion to, uh, sorry, the centralized decision uh, back in the, what was it, the 14th century, I think, uh, uh, to, um, to continue Stop exploring the uh, world a, yeah, at precisely the time the when that's yeah. what you should have been doing. Yeah. The, the, the Chinese had more ships, larger ships, better technology, better technology, and they decided to look inward and stop exploring the world at a time when Europe started doing it. And, and here they had mRNA vaccines licensed from Pfizer. They yeah. thought their own vaccines were good enough where they couldn't carry the message to their citizens that it was foreign vaccines. So they waited and waited and waited. We'll develop our own Chinese mRNA vaccine. Now, Omicron has shut down Shanghai and Shenzhen, as we're speaking. Uh, there's not a lot of native immunity in the population. The vaccines they've been using don't seem to work very well. Hong Kong right now has the highest death rate of any place during the whole pandemic at any point in time, wow. like higher than New York in March, April 2020. So I'm not sure what will happen there, but it looks pretty bad to me. Yeah. And they're trying this zero COVID strategy instead of using vaccines, uh, which I is... I don't think it can work. They should have humbled themselves, bought as many mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and others as they could have. Uh, also other Western vaccines, which are not, you know, like AstraZeneca, uh, Novavax. They didn't do it. So these centralized, really bad decisions. So, so the, And Russia the, the, just made one too, right? Invading Ukraine, disastrous. Yeah. Obviously yeah. Aw awful for Ukraine, but for Russia too. Yes. A huge yeah. mistake. Yeah. And autocracies can have runs of making a lot of good decisions. You see it in many places in history, not just recently. But sooner or later, the flows of information become lower quality. People are afraid to report bad news to the higher ups. Uh, the higher ups become deluded. They're not accountable to the public and very bad things happen. And we see this again and again. And we've been tricked into thinking somehow these autocracies work better than free societies, but they don't. I guess they had a run uh, they did. Uh, for a few years. Turkey became more of an autocracy at a period when they did okay. Mm -hmm. um, China did very Hungary, well. Hungary, China, even Russia did relatively well. For early years of Putin, they yeah, did fine, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then all of these are actually reversing now. Hungary, in the, for different reasons, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> having some trouble now with uh, Orban is having some trouble re-positioning uh, himself vis-a-vis -vis Putin. Uh, but that's a different story. But the big ones, Turkey, Russia, 
China, we're still waiting to see what's, what's going to happen. And this gets back to the title of my book, Stubborn Attachments. Yes. Stay stubbornly attached to your principles if those principles are well derived. So apart from growth, what are the central principles? I would say human rights. Here's a simple question. If you want to go out in the world and look for the poorest Chinese people in the world, where will you find them? You'll find them in China. You won't find them in Denmark. You won't find them in the US. Uh, you probably won't even find them in Brazil. You'll find them in China, not Taiwan, not Singapore, which are freer societies. Taiwan, I would say, is fully free. In fact, the Chinese tend to do pretty well outside of China. Remarkably well. well and they do the worst in China when they are under these principles. You wouldn't call it proper communism anymore, but it's a form of authoritarianism, state control, uh, no real emphasis on human rights or individual liberties or free speech. Those principles are just trampled on every day. And those are worse ideas. I will insist on this until I die. Is it ideas or is it culture? Well, ideas are a part of culture. You can call it either. I think it's both. I think there's a difference. But you, can, you can change ideas. It's harder to change culture. Yes. You know, and ideas come from culture. I agree. I agree. But Chinese living outside of China seem to have different ideas and a different culture. Chinese culture is amazing and wonderful, and it's reflected in many different areas. My personal interest would be food from China, maybe the world's best. <laughs> yeah. But there's something about its culture for all its virtues. When you apply it to law, state, and governance, it doesn't work well. You see this also in the Middle East. Lebanese, among others, do phenomenally well in other parts of the world. It's completely wrong to say they just have this rotten, lousy culture. Yeah. But when it comes to governance, you need a very particular kind of culture. And Denmark actually is one of the world leaders in this. Even by the standards of Western Europe, you could argue the modern state was developed first in Denmark and England, not France, not Germany. A true modern nation state with legitimacy and standardized procedures. Frank Fukuyama covered this at length in his book. Uh, Denmark was the leader, maybe even before England in some ways. So when we're talking about this in Denmark, I'm acutely aware this is the world's number one place for a big part of that vision. You were all first, not seventh, not like Europe was first. Denmark. <laughs> yeah, well, we um, we started fighting corruption very early. Yes. But but it was a very corrupt society that... Uh, As was Singapore was. Yeah. 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 Happened faster in Singapore, but um, over 100 years or so, we, we got rid of corruption in Denmark. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but but that's, that's the time it took. In Singapore, it took about 50, something. Less even, but yeah, many yeah. things happen quicker today. Yeah, yeah. But how much Denmark is a leader in principles of governance? Uh, I don't live here. I don't have a sense of how much contemporary Danes know this. But as an outsider, I'm completely aware of it. I land in the airport at Copenhagen. There's almost tears in my eyes. I feel I'm somewhere special, <laughs> and I am. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice. Um, England too. I have the same feeling. When I I, I flew to London before I came here. Uh, Certain democratic ideas come very early from England, the role of parliament and so on. Obviously, England is a kind of mother nation for my own America. And you, you ought to feel that emotionally when you enter these countries. Yeah. I think the danger is, you're so kind to, to bring up Denmark, which is a favorite Complacency. subject. A favorite subject because of you're so excellent, you become complacent. Yes, but, but there's also a, a danger of a, a, a development similar Similar but, but different to, to what's happening in China in that we have a very big welfare state yes. and we have some decisions that are being centralized uh, to an enormous extent. Uh, 
80 percent of, of of media uh, uh, TV radio production is state owned. Yes, that works as long as Denmark works the way it does. But if it was Russia, we'd say, and indeed it's the same situation as as Russia, uh, we would say that's a sign of a. Uh, malfunctioning state in, in some ways. The fact that your COVID response was so good, and it was, in part, yeah. it worries me. It means there's a certain conformism, yes. which is highly useful during a pandemic, but is not always functional in other settings. Yeah, I agree. That's it. Congratulations on mostly getting it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to it, be careful of your successes, right? Yeah, it, it's, an, it's an amazing thing that one day you get on the train and everybody wears a mask. Mm -hmm. and. The next day, the the the, uh, the 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 law saying you need to wear masks is is uh, taken away, and nobody wears a mask. And Americans are still arguing about it. Yeah, and maybe will be for twenty years. And nobody asks, and argues crazy. about it really here. Yeah. A few people do, but not very many. Yeah, it's it's not a politicized issue. Like my personal view is, I'm not sure how well they work. I think there's a good chance they might work, so I'll put one on, and do whatever is expected of me and sure. focus on other things. But Americans find it very hard to take that attitude. It's either a, a badge of honor and pride and signaling to the world a mask outside that you're like properly left wing, or you refuse to wear a mask even in a bar to show you're like a tough guy, properly right wing. Both of those attitudes to me are kind of American dysfunction. I'm like, I'm not sure, but you know, I'll just put this on. Yeah. So the Danes have decided that they want to show the world that we can reduce uh, carbon emissions by 70% yes. in 2030. So we're going beyond what the Paris Agreement uh, says we need mm -hmm. to, we go beyond what the European <laughs> Union says we need to. So we're sort of uh, going way out there yeah. to show the world. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if Denmark was, was a showcase on growth as Economic well? Economic growth, absolutely. Yeah. And how to deal with aging. Yeah. And how to <clears throat> regenerate a whole new set of companies comparable, say, to Maersk, but much newer. Mm. This is one thing where my country does awesomely well, which is generate new companies that become major companies every decade. Yeah. Most recently, the tech companies, but not only. In any area you look, you just find so many top American companies are pretty new. Yeah. But in Europe and in Denmark, you see... Uh, new technology is being, uh, you see a lot of skepticism. We had Uber for a while in mm -hmm. Copenhagen. Now it's banned. Mm -hmm. uh, GMO, we're viewing with great skepticism in, in all of Europe. It's being reg heavily yeah. regulated. Yeah. Um, artificial intelligence. Oh, Germany's terrified. Fracking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's you will lose the future all kinds of continues. things going on there. Any point in time, it seems fine until it isn't. And 50 years from now, it will be deeply, deeply regretted if that's the continuing trend. But that's in some way similar to the, to the Chinese thing, isn't it? We have central authority deciding which technologies we are to use and which we're not to use. And they're skeptical towards a lot of new technologies, not all, but a lot of new technologies. I worry about too much centralization in most countries of the European Union, yes. Yeah. So what can be done about that? It's a big, complicated question, uh, but I would like to see a great deal of deregulation in many parts of Europe, including the service sector, a lower burden of government on society. But in general, you need a cultural change to sustain that. Things like that don't come from nowhere. They don't stick around unless people believe in the new order of things. 
and more of an emphasis, let's just try for two and a half percent growth, you know, for five, 10 years. Let's just see if we can do it. Set it as a challenge. If you can't, well, okay, you've learned something, but let's just try. Let's have a politician, a party, a platform, whichever country, the 2.5ers, which is not an insanely high number, right? But it's higher than what it's been. And let's just try to do that one thing and watch those returns increase, compound, build on each other over time. And then by the time your grandchildren get here, they will be much better off because you did that. So it's a very forward looking vision. In the moment, what's the difference between two, two and a half percent? Like people don't notice, it's invisible, but it really matters. In each individual year, it's, it's negligible yeah. or it feels negligible, but it piles up. Again, it's this notion of compounding. If you invest well, say in stocks and you earn whatever percent each year, it grows on top of itself. And decades from now, it makes a huge difference. Though even in any single year, you only feel a little wealthier. That's the whole point is compounding returns. Yeah. It's the difference between thinking short-term and long-term in general, I guess. Right. Isn't it? Uh, that, uh, but if you have no vision for how the future can be much better, you won't see why you should do that. Because the present might feel too good or just yeah. feel satisfactory enough, feel too comfortable. But it's hard to have this, that vision because some of the stuff that we have today is, is um, you know, an iPhone wasn't thought of one year before it was created. It, it, it was a genuinely new thing that nobody had thought of before. But and there's many early versions of it that people try to make, maybe yeah. they fail, they don't have the materials, they try to make smart tablets for some while. So you have people working on this idea for over a decade, not succeeding. Steve Jobs puts all the pieces together and he just demanded it be done. He set that as a target for Apple. People within the company said, Steve, you're crazy. He's like, no, we're going to do this. Elon Musk, the same way. Yeah. The rocket that goes up and then just lands back again on the pad. Yeah, that yeah. seems crazy, but I've crazy. seen it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's not fake news. You've been there watching it? Not, but no, I've seen uh -huh. it on YouTube. It's, 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 okay. And uh, what was needed, it's not actually a super radical new technology. You needed an individual person, Elon Musk, yeah. who insisted it could be done. Or Steve Jobs, he insisted the iPhone could be done and that it would not just work, but be an object of beauty, admired around the world. And they both did it. So these are all cases that if they hadn't happened, you would have either not thought of it, or it seems impossible, or gee, aren't we doing well enough without these rockets? Yeah. Any one thing you can say that, but again, over the decades, over the centuries, your society is done, if that's your general attitude, done. I agree. But isn't, I think part of the challenge there is that even after the iPhone was invented, I mean, Nokia got it and they looked at it and said, well, okay, this, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. But it was only as people started using it and new apps and ways of using it yes. were developed that we started realizing yes. what had happened. Yes. And so this vision is, you, you, you can't sit, here now and imagine what a society that's twice as wealthy as what we have would be like. What, what we imagine is we will have twice as many cars and they will fill up the streets. And But th of course, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to have driverless cars or we're going to have flying cars or whatever. But it, it's all stuff that we, we, we don't, we can't really imagine the ways in which all that will be useful to us. That's why it's hard to stay focused on the future. Yeah. It now seems possible there'll be commercially viable nuclear fusion. Super green, very safe, 
the consequences of that, I can't think through. I know scientist friends, I talk about it with them, they can't think it through. But to be in a world of really cheap, quite green energy, you don't have to worry about the sun setting or the wind dying down. I think if it happens, it will be phenomenal. But if it happens, you need people to see it through who are totally convinced the future matters. Yeah. It's interesting to me, Elon Musk from South Africa, a troubled country, not a complacent country. Yeah. He realized you can't just sit still, like the world will come get you. Uh, that to me is noteworthy. Uh, Steve Jobs is uh, in his background, Lebanese, not born in Lebanon, but that too is notable. True American values being carried by people who are uh, not quite as closely tied to America. Okay, so some people say, some people would argue, say, it's not about culture, Tyler. It's, it's the fact that it's just the way it is. All the great stuff has been invented. True, we're inventing lots of stuff, but it's Twitter and uh, you know, things that are not creating as much growth as some of the stuff we used to invent. Aren't you glad they didn't uh, say that about the mRNA vaccines? Madeline Carrico, <laughs> she worked on it for 20 years, yeah. didn't get a real academic job, was looked down upon, people thought it was nonsense. I talked to a number of specialists in early 2020. They said, Moderna's never made a vaccine before. This stuff won't even work. Where are we now? And by the way, immigrants got us there, for the most part. And the Pfizer, you know, BioNTech, German vaccines from Turkish migrants. A group looked down upon in Germany for a long time, and they're the ones who pull it off. What does that tell you? I would agree, and I would also say that uh, in a dynamic economy, the new stuff will be turned into something that's <clears throat> valuable. It's, it's not valuable in itself. It's the, way, it's the way markets take it in and innovate and, and, and use it. And there's so many patents now, and there's so much happening in biotech and materials technology, and you know all kinds of stuff sure. that 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 creates opportunity, which for some reason is not being turned into growth right now. And that says something you say about our culture. I agree. I think it also says something about economic policy, tax rates, and stuff like that. Sure. Um, but. Um, But some people are claiming that, you know, globalization has already happened and now that that'll be moving in the opposite direction. Uh, demographics have been favorable previously and they're not so favorable now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the counter argument, I guess, is to say that a dynamic economy and a dynamic culture solves those problems. Maybe solves is too strong a word. Look, those are real problems, aging, deglobalization, but it's up to us to confront those and yeah. overcome them. So just a simple example, 30 years ago, not that much scientific talent came from India, even though it had a large number of people. And now so much talent, scientific CEOs, tech innovators comes from India. So mostly they did something right, maybe we helped them. It's an amazing story how much talent now comes from India. Uh, was not well predicted 30 years ago. Uh, how many other parts of the world can we make like India? Again, I'm not saying it's easy, but it definitely can be done. It's stuff not many people saw. You need people totally dedicated to doing it. We can make so much more of the world like India. Let's wrap up this discussion talking a little bit about immigration because you've brought it up a few times and Americans talking about immigrants 
sound very different from Europeans talking about immigrants. And within Europe, Europe there's a lot of variation. Yeah, that's true. Yes. But certainly Danes talking about immigrants mainly talk about problems. Right. And you talk about resources. You talk about innovation. You talk about ideas, talent. Your model relies so much on social cohesion that I don't know how many immigrants you can successfully take in. As an outsider, I just genuinely don't know. Okay. But I think the countries, Canada, Australia, UK, United States, that are sort of geared to deal with a certain amount of chaos or diversity or disorder, uh, for that reason, have some bright futures. Even Sweden, which in some ways has had bad migration policies, it's a bit of a wreck. Danes will often look down on Sweden like, oh, we don't want to become that. I understand that. But Stockholm has a very vibrant startup scene. It's arguably the most open place of the Nordic countries. I'm not even sure it will work out for them, but I'm just saying realize it's a trade-off. And uh, again, I don't know if Denmark should switch its model, but the places that have the other, other model, it's working really well for them. Doesn't mean everyone but, can do it. But wouldn't you say that that would be the, um, the weakness of the Danish cohesive model? Of course. It's relatively close to outsiders. So there's a balance there. Yes, and again, I don't know what point on that scale Denmark should find, no. but to be aware of the trade-off is at least the yeah. beginnings of thinking that through. And it is part of Danish discussion. Business people tend to be more open to, to immigration, and they do point out that they need talent sure. to come into the country, and it is not helpful to have a debate about immigrants that is very hostile. Um, Here's a way to think about it. Say 40 years ago, so much of talent was in Europe or North America, maybe Japan. The next 40 years won't be anything like that. So much of talent will be from poorer countries, non-white countries, non-Christian countries, all, all sorts of complications. So a country has to make a decision, like how will it deal with that? Again, it will vary by country, but it's not like the old world where you can just kind of pull in a bit of talent from Germany, have a few Americans come by, radically different world coming up. And it's going to matter. How much talent's coming, leaving Ukraine right now? You assume the people getting out on and average Russia. are more talented. And Russia. Who is well geared to take advantage of that? I've actually become a lot more optimistic about Poland than I had been. I was never pessimistic. But now I see a lot of that talent settling in Poland, Warsaw becoming a kind of tech hub. Already some wonderful talent from Ukraine, like Vitalik Buterin of, you know, Ethereum. And I think Poland, uh, assuming that whole part of the world doesn't just blow up, but Poland is well situated to come out ahead here. We'll see, of course. It's interesting because Poland is uh, <coughs> very, has been over the last few years a, a very conservative uh, country moving in a slightly authoritarian direction. Uh, direction, not that they're not there, mm -hmm. but you know, it's it's been a bit of a concern. And it should be, um, but I'm more optimistic about them now. They will have other problems on their hands, which yes. are not good problems to have, to be clear, but I think it will distract them from some of their creeping other problems, huge injection of talent, a chance to really build something. And I found, I was in Warsaw a year before the pandemic, just walking on the streets of Warsaw, you feel a dynamic of growth that you don't feel in most of Western Europe. Warsaw, of all places, has a sense its future can be much better than its past. It may or may not get there. But I came away, you know, really cheered from the time I spent in Warsaw. Mm. Even the U.S. has a tension when it comes to immigration. You know, Trump. Absolutely. Uh, it's, we, we've gotten much worse at it. Why is that? 
Well, we took in individuals at such a high rate. American history more generally is alternating periods of extreme inflow, and then you tighten the controls and you absorb. And then you open them again, you tighten, you absorb, back and forth. So maybe we're just doing back and forth, which is what our history had been in the past. So I hope, okay. I, hope I hope it's nothing worse than that. But if we truly close our borders to foreign talent, the U.S. will cease to be a great nation and we will have wrecked a wonderful creation. And that will make me very sad. Yeah. Sounds similar to what some Danes are saying with you know, the opposite sign. Yes. That the reason why Denmark works <laughs> is that it's a, such a cohesive, homogenous nation. And if we open it up to immigration, we'll destroy what we have. I think they're mostly right. But here's the thing. What you have had is going to change anyway. So you can let it change and 15 years from now be reactive and have fewer choices, or you can proactively steer it and be more in control and build a better new thing. So I would consider that, like the people who say all that, I think they're correct. Like if you let in all these migrants, you'll change the old social cohesion system, but it's changing anyway. And you want to be ahead of where it's headed or like chasing after and actually not have many choices because you just let it, you know, the clock tick for too long. And be ahead, does that mean choosing who to come in or what does it mean changing Whatever culture? vision you have, changing culture, changing who comes in, under what terms, how it's done, a lot of different dimensions. Again, I don't know what you should do, but there's an argument to be made for you can't stay this closed forever. Let's be proactive and get, you know, the people best for our system while we can. Turning full circle, I guess, high-growth economy will be better at absorbing immigrants than a low-growth economy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think economies with a number of different centers of power do better. So Canada is an example. Obviously, the U.S. Like Toronto is the most important city, but there's you know, Vancouver, you have Montreal. They're kind of separate islands. And in between, is like empty country. And they're not that well integrated. I think You know, you go to South Korea, the contrast. Well, there's Seoul, like a third of the people live in and near Seoul. Everyone sees everything that happens. You don't have as many experiments. But Canada, Australia, you have these isolated islands of cities that experiment, become different. No one quite sees the whole picture. I think that's proven useful for them. And they compete against each other. And they compete against each other by taking in foreign talent, among other ways. Whereas here, you know, Copenhagen, it really is dominant. In Korea, Seoul is dominant. This is not really ever going to change, right? Mm. So you don't have that competitive process. You don't have the distance. You don't have the diversity. You don't have as much experimentation. So it is harder. Tyler Khan, thank you very much. Thank you. This was the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would appreciate an honest review in your podcast app to help others find the show. Thank you for listening.